Welcome to Volume 2 of Divers Down. Chapter 2. Julie Scott, Archaeologist. The girl replaced her mouthpiece and let the scuba comb hang by its lanyard. Through her mask, brown eyes glared accusingly at Kip, as though he were some kind of horrible criminal. Coming up behind the girl was a male diver. Obviously, the two were together. Naturally, she would have a partner. Kip knew that only an idiot like himself would dive alone. The thought hurt. He decided he'd better do something about the shark. The hammerhead was quiet now, lying in the bottom about ten feet down. Kip finned down, drew the knife from his leg sheath, and made sure it was dead. Maybe the girl's cry of murder had made him oversensitive, but he did feel a twinge of shame. The hammerhead was a mere baby, about thirty inches long. He cut his spear loose and wound in his line, feeling a surge of anger. Why, for gosh sake, should he feel guilty about killing a shark? Adult hammerheads were known to attack men. Killing one was a public service. A shadow made him look up. The girl was drifting overhead, taking pictures with an Iconos underwater camera, documenting the unspeakable deed, Kip guessed. If he had a scuba comm, he would tell her off with a few well-chosen words, which were on the gadget allowed. It was a plastic voice chamber with a silicone rubber diaphragm. The diver took a breath, blew it clear of water through the one-way valves, and spoke whatever words his remaining breath allowed. The sound waves carried underwater and could be heard by other divers nearby. Kip had never spared the cash to buy one, because his first priority had been to save up for the round-trip fare to Hawaii. The male diver swam down to Kip's level. He removed his mouthpiece, put a scuba comb to his lips, blew it clear of water, and said, Big shark coming. Follow us. Kip turned. In the distance, a torpedo-shaped body was silhouetted against the light. The fin tip seemed to blur against the lighter background, and he guessed it was a white tip, and a big one. The man and the girl already were moving off. Kip followed. He didn't want to be left alone with a known man-eater that looked as big as a navy torpedo. The pair led him a few hundred feet, and the man gestured toward the surface. Overhead was a boat hull with an outboard motor and a ladder over the side, the boat he had seen anchored off the pier. The anchor line held it to a small anchor buried in the sand. Kip looked back. The white tip hadn't followed. It must have fouled the dead hammerhead. The man signaled, and the girl slipped off her fins and carried them up the ladder into the boat. He motioned to Kip, who shook his head. For a moment, they exchanged gestures like two people trying to bow each other through a revolving door. Then the man yielded and went up the ladder. Kip removed his fins and followed. He broke through into the air and let his mouthpiece drop. The man and the girl were peeling off gear. The girl, with her back to him, Kip stripped off his own gear. With his face no longer concealed, the man appeared to be in his late twenties. He was big, perhaps an inch taller than Kip and smoothly muscled. His hair was black and his eyes brown. Kip liked his looks and envied his deep tan. The girl finished removing her gear. She was wearing a one-piece white bathing suit over a slender feminine figure. She turned to face Kip and he swallowed hard. She was just about the prettiest girl he had ever seen at close range. 
The velvety tan of her oval face was still marked where her mask had pressed, the outline framing an appealing dusting of freckles across the bridge of a cute nose. A pair of long-lashed brown eyes examined him coolly, as though inspecting an unusual and not very pretty sea slug. At first I thought you were a stupid tourist out shooting harmless animals on the reef, she said coldly. But you're not a tourist. Not with that tank. Who are you? The man interrupted. Just a moment, Julie. I didn't see anyone else out there, fella. Were you diving alone? Kip found his voice. Yes, I was alone. That's not very bright. I know. Kip didn't want to stare, but he was having a hard time keeping his eyes from the girl. She couldn't be any older than he was. There wasn't anybody around, and I was anxious to get into the water. And anxious to kill something? The girl added bitterly. That little shark wouldn't have hurt you. I'll bet you're the kind who goes hunting rabbits with a shotgun and pretends to be a great white hunter. Her scorn bit deep, and Kip got angry again. Just a doggone blue-eyed minute, miss. The only hunting I do is underwater and for seafood. I don't do it with scuba either. You weren't skin-diving when you shot that shark, she returned flatly. No, I took the gun along because these are strange waters to me and I didn't know what I might run into. And what's so bad about shooting a shark anyway? Little sharks grow up. I've seen big hammerheads off Long Island that could eat you in two gulps and would like the chance. Pacific hammerheads can't be any sweeter. So what's the big fat problem? You ruined my picture-taking she said coldly. I got Ted up early because I wanted shots of the reef animals while the light was still low, and then you came along. Don't you know the struggles of a wounded animal bring sharks? You saw how fast that white tip appeared. I'll bet others are down there by now, too. One reason that Kip wasn't very good at arguing was his tendency to attempt to see the other fellow's point of view. He realized the girl had sufficient reason to be disappointed and angry. I'm sorry, he said sincerely. Really, I am. I didn't know there were other divers around. If I had, I'd have thought twice about shooting. I knew it wouldn't hurt me, but I hate sharks. Probably because they scare me to death. The man spoke up. I call that a reasonable apology, Julie. All right, Ted, let's go home. Julie's brown eyes were no longer quite so angry. Because Kip was making a good effort not to stare impolitely at her, he didn't see the ghost of a smile on her lips or the interest in her eyes. She asked, Do you want to ride back to the pier with us, or do you want to go down and try for that white tip? Kip grinned. When I go after a shark that size, it'll be at the periscope of a nuclear sub. We'll take you back then. Julie was trying with little success to keep from smiling. I'm still curious. How is it that you're using Dr. Morrison's scuba gear? Kip was appalled. He knew the name, those initials, C.M. Dr. Carl Morrison was associate director of the Oceanic Institute. Just his luck to pick a senior scientist's personal tank. I'm a summer employee at Makapu, he explained, trying to be casual. My name's Kip Morgan. I borrowed the tank from a shed of the Institute. The rest of the gear is my own. Ted paused while hauling at the anchor. Borrowed from whom? Carl doesn't return from the mainland until tomorrow morning. Kip was feeling very uncomfortable at this point. Just borrowed, he said. 
The summer kits aren't even due to start arriving until tomorrow, Julie said. Aren't you early? Kip nodded. I just wanted to have the weekend to get acquainted with the place. Julie bit her lower lip and concealed a smile. Get acquainted and get into trouble? She did smile then. I'm Julie Scott. This is my brother, Ted. Glad to meet you, Kip said, returning her smile. The anchor aboard, Ted, started the motor, and the boat roared off toward the pier. In a few moments, they tied up in the Mackay Basin. Kip helped transfer the diving gear, then jumped to the pier and gave Julie a hand, which she didn't need. He found that she was about five inches shorter than his six feet. He bent to pick up gear and so missed the silent communication between brother and sister. They understood each other very well and the lift of an eyebrow or change of expression served for many words. Julie, with three older brothers, was quite used to boys and their ways and she was sensitive and a perceptive girl. Even though she had provoked Kip into a sharp response, she sensed that he was rather shy and she liked the honest way he had bluntly admitted his fear of sharks, a perfectly normal reaction that most boys would try to hide under a phony facade of fearlessness. She doubted that this big, athletic-looking boy was timid about very much, and she thought he was very attractive. Her expressive face said to Ted, I think I like him, and Ted grinned his approval. I'll help carry your gear, Kip offered, and then I'd better go recharge Dr. Morrison's tank. All right, Ted agreed. We'll drive you to the Institute to recharge the tank. Then how would you like to get dressed and come with us? We always have an early lunch after a dive. We don't dare leave you alone, Julie added. You're in enough trouble already. That sounded ominous to Kip. The Scots seemed to be closely connected to Makapu'u, and they should know. He accepted gratefully. On the way to Kailua, up the coast from Makapu'u, he learned that Ted was an air controller for the Federal Aviation Agency at Honolulu Airport, that Julie lived in Port Jefferson on Long Island and was spending her second summer with Ted, and that, to his delight, she was also a summer employee at the Oceanic Center. The Scots lived in a comfortable cottage on a hill overlooking Kailua Bay. Hibiscus and ginger were in bloom, and lush tropical plants almost screened the cottage from view. The porch, which Julie called by its Hawaiian name, the Lanai, was draped with red blossoms on a vine she called Bougainvillea. Ted's pretty wife, Marge, made Kip feel right at home. I'll fix cheese while you two get dressed, she told Julie and Ted. Come on, Kip, sit in the kitchen with me. Marge did most of the talking, answering Kip's questions about living in Hawaii. By the time tall glassfuls of juice had been squeezed, from sweet Kona oranges from the Big Island, the others were back. Julie was more attractive than ever in a colorful print dress of a style he had never seen before. It's called a moo-moo, she replied to his question. The original style is full length, and you'll see lots of those. This is one of those shorty moo-moos. Do you like it? He searched for a graceful way to tell her that she looked prettier than any beauty in a TV commercial, but he wasn't adept with compliments. Um, I like it very much, he said finally, not realizing his expression was more flattering than anything he might have said. Ted motioned Kip to a rattan chair on the lanai. Tell us how you got to Makapu, Kip. I wrote to Mr. Pryor, Kip explained. 
He didn't go into the days of effort to put down on paper just why he wanted a summer job at the center. Mr. Yamashita answered, saying that my application had been accepted. Julie murmured, That must have been some letter. Kip looked at her. How did she know? Ted saw his surprise. Uh, Makapuhu gets hundreds of applications for fewer than 40 summer jobs every year, Kip. Yours must have been pretty special. What'd you say? Well, at first I tried to be fancy and build up how much I knew, but that didn't sound right. I wasn't being myself. Finally, I just said that the sea had been a part of my life as long as I could remember, and it was going to be my life's work. I was going to be an ocean engineer, and it would be great if I could work with the Mackay engineers. I admitted that I didn't have many skills yet, but I was an NAUI diver. I could handle a small boat and had rebuilt an old clunker into a good car and could repair diving gear. Then I said that when someone gave me a job to do, it was a matter of pride to do it as well as I could, and I'd do what I was told, and maybe I'd be more useful after a little experience. Just like that? Julie asked. Just about. Well, you hit the right note, Ted told him. The people at Makapuu appreciate directness and honesty, but you can also bet that they checked and you got high recommendations. How about you? Kip asked Julie. Well, I'd read about Makapuu, so I went there the day after I arrived last year. Somebody pointed out Dr. Morrison. I joined him when he was walking to the Institute and said I wanted to work for him. I said I was going to be an undersea archaeologist specializing in the Pacific, starting with Hawaii. He said the Institute didn't have an archaeologist, so I told him I could be the first. And he said yes? Well, not right away. He told me to bring him a written work plan and he'd see. I did, and then he said yes. Kip echoed her comment about his letter. That must have been some plan. Julie blushed faintly. Tell me about it, he urged. Later, Marge Scott said. Right now, I need someone to help me with lunch. Come on, Julie. Kip was left with Ted. Being curious about everything under the sun, he kept Ted talking about the electronics systems used in air traffic control. He found that Julie's brother was a systems engineer, working for a while as a controller so he could understand the human problems involved. Later he would find solutions to the problems. Ted was also a consultant to the Mackay Range. He had chosen to live in Hawaii rather than remain with his father and brothers, all engineers as a member of Scott Engineering, Inc. in New York City. Julie was the baby of the family, living with their parents on Long Island. At lunch, they talked about diving. Ted and Marge had been diving since high school and had taught Julie as soon as she was big enough to carry a small tank. Then, when she reached 16, she had taken a YMCA course in time to get a diver's card before coming to Hawaii for this summer. So Kip learned Julie's age without even asking. After lunch, Ted and Marge left them alone on the lanai, and Kip alternated between looking at Julie and the panorama out over Kailua Bay. He thought both views were sensational. Normally a bit ill at ease with girls, he was very comfortable in Julie's company, mostly because he found he could talk about ideas and opinions with her as he would have with another boy, although there wasn't the remotest chance of ever thinking of her as one. At his urging, she told him about her project. Julie's plan had proposed a search of the old Hawaiian records to find evidence of the loss of a native craft, one which might be recoverable 
as an authentic example of Polynesian canoe craft. If found and recovered, it would be a documented exhibit for Sea Life Park after study by the scientists at the Bishop Museum in Honolulu. To make it a real project, I added realistic conditions, she explained. First, it had to be old enough to be useful as an archaeological exhibit, but recent enough that most of it could probably be recovered. Second, the wreck had to be in water shallow enough for recovery and in a place where the wood was protected from marine borers by a covering of sand or silt. Finally, enough had to be known about it to make it valuable to scientists. Kip whistled. You don't make it easy for yourself, do you? How did you do? Oh, I found one, Julie said proudly. As she went on, Kip marveled at the systematic way she had carried out her plan and her ability to piece together scant fragments of information. He began to realize that this delightful girl was as bright as she was attractive. He shook his head in admiration when she finished. That's some yarn. I'd be so proud of a piece of work like that, I'd be impossible to live with. Wish I could help you recover that boat. Julie smiled. Perhaps you can. I don't see how. Suddenly his eyes were somber. What did you mean earlier when you said I was in trouble? Well, maybe trouble isn't exactly the right word. Let's say that you didn't get off to a very good start. First of all, divers have to show their cars before using center equipment and then make at least one dive with a staff member. Second, the center does have gear for general use, but a lot of it is personal, like Dr. Morrison's tank. Nobody ever touches things marked with somebody's name or initials. And third, the buddy rule, it's strictly enforced. She gave him a sidelong glance. If the staff learns about it, they won't like it. You won't be fired or penalized, but you will get scolded. But it'll make them doubtful about you and about how reliable and sensible you are. I was neither, he said bluntly. I was a complete idiot. I knew better than to dive alone or borrow stuff without permission. Well, then, perhaps no one will ever have to know. Well, I'll know. And I'll also know that if I've blown my chances at Makapu'u, there's nobody to blame but me. Chapter 3. Assignment Time Kip didn't sleep well. He had talked himself into breaking basic rules, and sooner or later he would have to pay for it. The Institute guard knew he had taken a tank and gone diving alone. The guard at Mackay Pier probably had seen him go into the water alone and return later with Julie and Ted. He doubted that either guard would think it important enough to report, and it wasn't likely that the Scots would go around telling about it. But sometime, a chance remark would lead to questions. The hammerhead didn't really concern him. During the ride back to the center, Julie had admitted she was upset about having her photo dive interrupted, not about the shark, and she considered the incident closed. Kip knew that she and Ted probably could have stayed down for more picture-taking without any great danger from sharks. But sharks are pretty unpredictable, and Ted had been sensibly cautious in calling it off. Kip was thoroughly in favor of taking no chances where Julie Scott's well-being was concerned. Because of a restless night, Kip slept late. There was no one in the dorm kitchen when he got up. He ate a bowl of cereal and walked down to the center about half past eight. People were at work everywhere he looked. A secretary checked him in, then led him into the office of the assistant to the director for student employees. 
This is John Kipling Morgan Jr., George. He came in late Saturday and Mr. Davis took care of him. George Yamashita, a big, good-looking young man, was a Honolulu boy, a graduate student in business administration at the University of Hawaii. He wore Bermuda shorts and his short-sleeved open shirt, the kind known as an aloha shirt, was a masterpiece of flaming color. He greeted Kip cordially. Do we call you John? Jack or what? The family calls me Kip, sir. Kip it is. Call me George. This is a first name kind of place. Kip hesitated. He believed it was better to meet trouble head on to let it catch up with him somewhere down the line when he was less prepared. Uh, George, I'd better tell you what I did yesterday because I wouldn't want you to hear it from somebody else. He described the dive without trying to make excuses. I won't break rules again, he finished. For a long moment, Yamashita said nothing, but Kip sensed that his attitude was less cordial. All right, he said at last. I'll count it in your favor that you volunteered this information. It's no credit to you that no accidents happened. It was fool luck. For all you knew, Carl's tank might have had a defective reserve valve. Or not knowing the reef animals here, you might have gotten a sting that affected your breathing. Some of the reef organisms aren't as harmless as they seem. There's a reason for rules, as you obviously know. Obey the few we have, and we'll have no further problems. Yes, sir, Kip said unhappily. You can do penance by helping me today. A load of kids landed on the 8 o'clock flight from the mainland, and they'll be here shortly. More will arrive later today. Get a stack of information packets for my secretary and put one on every bunk in the boys' dorm. Keep count of arrivals and let the restaurant people at Sea Life Park know how many will probably show up for lunch. Help the girls with baggage. They always bring three times more than the boys do. Make yourself useful. Yes, sir. Kip turned and hurried out, got the packets from the secretary and started for the dorm. Julie and a Hawaiian girl were talking in front of the porpoise tanks. She beckoned to him and her welcoming smile lifted his dampened spirit several notches. This is Vicki Lahoa, Kip Morgan. Vicki is a summer student porpoise trainer at Sea Life Park. Kip, it's her third year. Vicki was barely five feet tall, with black hair down to her waist. Her smile gleamed white in the brown of her face. Aloha, Kip. Hi, Vicky, he asked curiously. How can you handle porpoises? Some of them must be twice your size. Vicky laughed. I don't handle them, not physically. They're good friends, and we enjoy working together. Wish I could get close enough to pet one. Vicky shook her head. We have to be very careful of the number of people who get close to them. If a porpoise gets a cold, it can mean fatal pneumonia because porpoises can't sneeze or cough. They have no way to get rid of fluid in their air passages, like we do. But maybe you can meet some of my friends after we know you're free of infection and not apt to give them germs or viruses. Well, that makes sense, Kip agreed. See you later, Kip, Julie. I have to go to work with Lilo. She's a spinner I'm training to porpoise over my canoe, spinning as she goes. What's a spinner? Kip asked Julie as Vicky walked towards Sea Life Park. A spinner porpoise. It's a species that leaps out of the water and spins like a top. Kip, did you see George? Yeah, just a minute ago. I told him about yesterday. Well, I think you were very wise. She smiled her approval at him. She pointed to the second floor of an institute building. I have a desk up there in the library. If you look for me and I'm not there, it means I'm doing more research in Honolulu probably at the Bishop Museum at the University.
I don't know where I'll be, Kip said ruefully. Today I'm supposed to do penance by making myself useful. I'd better get at it. George wasn't pleased. You'll make up for it. I hope so. I'll try. For the rest of the day, Kip showed boys to empty bunks, toted dozens of pieces of girl-type luggage up the girls' dorm steps, counted noses, and reported the count to Sea Life Park, and helped George's secretary check registration cards to be sure they all included full names and social security numbers for payroll accounts. It was confusing. Boys and girls, all sizes and shapes and colors, seemed to arrive in a steady stream, although he knew that the total was less than 40, and that some wouldn't arrive for several days. The registrations told him they came from all over the country, and their ages were mostly within normal high school limits, with a small, younger, and older scattering. At lunch, both Julie and Sato came to sit with him, to his great pleasure. Kip was the kind of person who responds warmly to friendliness, but is a little too shy to take the initiative. Julie and Sato obviously were old friends. They both enjoyed losing him with a liberal sprinkle of Hawaiian words in their talk, but they were also careful to explain the words. He learned that the ancient Hawaiians had only two directions, inland toward the mountains and outward toward the sea. The words were Mauka and Makai, thus Makai Range, the range toward the sea. The meaning of Makapu'u was less clear. Its origins were lost in antiquity and might mean the eye, the blade, or face of the mountain. Any cliff was a pali. Native Hawaiians were sometimes called kanakas, from the old word for people. Boys were kanes and girls wahinis. The three were at a table for four. A pretty blonde looking for a place to sit brought her tray by from the cafeteria line just as Sato thanked Julie for passing the ketchup by calling her his nani wahini, or beautiful girl. Julie accused him of handing her a lot of humalamali, which she explained to Kit meant flattery or soft soap. Julie smiled at the blonde girl who had been listening with amusement. Won't you join us? I'm Julie Scott. The one practicing his Hawaiian is Sato Punaloa, and the big one behind the iced tea glass is Kip Morgan. I'm Susan Manning, she sat down with them. I'm glad to meet y'all. Is it polite to ask where you're from or what you do? Well, I'm from Long Island, and my bag is undersea archaeology, Julie replied. Kip is an engineering type from Connecticut, and Sato is a promising biologist from the island of Hawaii. That means he'll promise anything, but all you'll get from him is mullet. Susan laughed. I'm a biology type, too, from Alaska. I worked with the Oceanic Institute's program there last summer. I want to be a fishery scientist. Sato sighed and simulated sorrow. Too bad, Julie. I'm afraid it's all over between us. I just found a new nani Aikane to help me with my ene, meaning beautiful friend and mullet respectively. I'm a fish person, too, Susan. If you're settled in, I'll show you my mullet after lunch. I'd like that. Susan said. George Yamashita showed up, bringing a short, slender boy with bushy black hair. Kip, this is Jimmy Clary. He's going to be my helper. Get him settled, will you? Kip introduced Jimmy, a San Francisco boy, to Julie, Susan, and Sato, and then took him to the dorm and found him an empty bunk. For the rest of the afternoon, he ran errands for George. At five, George said, Okay, Kip, call it a day and go eat. See you at seven. Kip wasn't hungry. At seven, there would be a meeting at which assignments would be handed out. 
He wanted desperately to be assigned to the Mackay Undersea Range. He guessed other jobs would be fun too, but engineering was what he cared about. He wandered down to the shore, preferring solitude to the crowded dorm until he found whether he had made it or not. Seated on a lava boulder, he watched surfers riding the waves into the beach. Nearby, two elderly Hawaiians were fishing with throw nets, catching crabs like the one he had seen on the bottom while diving, but much smaller. He watched the sea and the people until five minutes before conference time, and then walked to meet whatever might be in store for him. The conference room was at one end of the office building Lanai, a few feet from George Yamashita's office. Groups of newly arrived kids were on the lanai, and others were on the driveway in front of the porpoise tanks. Some were still trickling down in twos and threes from the dorms. Kip saw Sato and Susan walking down from the fish tanks next to the lab. Julie wasn't in sight. George came out of his office with a sheaf of papers in his hands and called, Inside, gang. Kip went into the conference room and looked around curiously. There was a screen at the front of the wood-paneled room, and both slide and movie projectors were ready. Around the walls were photos and drawings. He paused to study an artist's conception of Deep Voyager, Makapu'u's remarkable design for an undersea glider with glass spheres for pressure chambers. It would be capable of ocean-wide travel at depths down to 20,000 feet. The room was filling. He took a seat in the back row and looked at those who were to be his fellow employees for the next few weeks. But the only thing they had in common was a look of happy expectancy. Clearly, all were as excited as he was at being at Makapu'u Oceanic Center. Otherwise, they might have belonged to any typical high school class. Kids pushed past as they found seats in his row. A girl with a mass of curly dark hair and sunglasses sat in the next seat. She produced a sketch pad and felt-tipped pen and began a swift portrait of Georgia Mashita. Kip could see that she was very good. Just beyond her was a boy with sun-streaked hair, and beyond him, a very young-looking Hawaiian boy. Julie came in flanked by two boys. She seemed to be enjoying their comments. Kip told himself firmly that he couldn't expect to monopolize a girl like Julie Scott, not with so many boys around. He knew he wasn't much of a hand with girls. The casual line of chatter they all seemed to like so much just wasn't in him. But this once he found himself almost wishing it were. A group of adults came in and joined George. One was a big man with a curly mop of wheat yellow hair, shaggy eyebrows, and keen blue eyes. Kip knew him from his pictures and sat up straight. This was the famous Taylor A. Pryor, known from his initials as TAP. He was the president of the Oceanic Foundation, the boss of Makapu'u, the man who had dreamed, planned, and put together the vast modern complex that was Makapu'u Oceanic Center. Kip had read everything he could find out about Makapu'u, poring over ocean journals like Undersea Technology, collecting articles from Life, Reader's Digest, and other popular magazines, and absorbing every word in books like The Sea People. Tap Pryor was one of his heroes, a man who was always at what scientists and engineers called the cutting edge of oceanic development. Kip was surprised at how young the head of Makapu'u seemed. Tap Pryor welcomed the young people and said the staff always enjoyed having so many of them around. He said they were a hand-picked group from whom he expected a great deal. 
No summer group had ever disappointed him, and he was certain they would contribute to the Makapu'u programs and have a fine time doing it. After the brief introduction, lights were dimmed, and Tap Pryor ran quickly through the great variety of projects underway at Makapu'u, with slides and movies to illustrate. He described the first undersea mobile habitats for working divers. Kuma, an undersea vehicle like a small helicopter made of plastic spheres. Designs for undersea vacation cottages. Research into porpoise and whale sonar. Experiments that had taught porpoises to be creative. The aquaculture of fish in tanks, ponds, and the open sea, and much more. There were more projects than kids in the room. Mr. Pryor finished to prolonged applause from the group. Then George Yamashita took over. He handed out lists of the names and hometowns of the summer employees. You'll get acquainted fast, he told them. But to help put faces with names, I'm going to call the roll. As your name is called, stand up long enough so that we can see what you look like. The girl next to Kip was Ann Bloom from Boston. She had completed a very good sketch of George and was finishing one of Tap Pryor. The boy next to her was Tom Shepard from Tucson, Arizona. The Hawaiian boy was Umi Hoapili. Sitting next to Julie was Willis McKay from Buffalo, New York, a big, good-looking boy with slicked back hair. Kip didn't like his looks and had to grin at the thought. He knew he wouldn't like the looks of any boy who sat next to Julie. On her other side was a rail-thin boy named Bob Richards from Canton, Ohio. Introductions finished, George smiled at the group. I know you're anxious about assignments. We tried to follow your wishes when they have matched our summer projects. I'm sure we made mistakes, but don't worry because most of you will rotate from job to job unless a supervisor has special needs for your talent. Now let's meet your supervisors. First, Dr. Carl Morrison, Associate Director of the Oceanic Institute. The man whose tank Kip had taken was tall and gray-haired, with a goatee like that of a Spanish grandee, which he resembled. The following are assigned to Dr. Morrison. Carol Burquist, Anne Bloom, Benjamin Mankiewicz, Susan Manning, Sato Punaloa, and Julie Scott. Kip saw Susan and Sato shake hands. They were pleased to be working together, and he was glad for them. They had clicked at once. He listened intently as the group was divided and divided again. Some were assigned to Sea Life Park, some to other institute advisors, and some to offices. Then George introduced Dr. Peter Jordan, special projects director for Mackay Range, and Kip leaned forward anxiously. Jordan was about 35, Kip guessed, slightly under six feet, slim and wiry with sandy hair and the kind of complexion that burns but never tans. It was easy to picture him in a hard hat directing construction of a dam, bridge, or submersible. Kip learned later that Pete Jordan was a Caltech engineer who had been project boss on a deep drilling ship and one of the designers of a thousand-foot deep habitat. He had laid ocean pipelines off Alaska and supervised ship salvage for the Navy. Assigned to Pete Jordan were Umi Hoapili from Maui, Willis McKay, who sat next to Julie, John Morgan from Connecticut, Edward Polakowski from Rhode Island, and Charles Reed from Oregon. Kip went weak with relief. He had made it. Assignment to the Mackay Undersea Range. First step of a very big dream.